Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with a story here about smart meters. This is in the Daily Mail. Said no to a smart meter. Prepare for a deluge of junk mail after energy firms are given the green light to pester you. Homeowners who have refused to have a smart energy meter installed face being bombarded with junk mail after power suppliers were given the green light to target customers who had previously said no to an upgrade. Smart meters show exactly how much energy you were using minute by minute in pounds and pence and send this data automatically to your supplier. But customers are allowed to refuse to have one and many have told MoneyMail that they have legitimate concerns about safety, their privacy being eroded and energy firms gaining remote control over the gas and electricity supply. In a letter to suppliers yesterday, the energy watchdog said it expected firms to ramp up the number of meters they installed over the next three years and told them to take all reasonable steps to get devices in every home by the end of 2020. Crucially, this would include re-contacting customers who have declined a meter, says Ofgem. The six-page letter said suppliers should work out exactly what each customer is concerned about and why they previously rejected a smart meter. These motivations should then be taken into account as firms try to persuade more people to sign up. For example, if someone refuses a smart meter because they're worried that privacy will be eroded or that criminals may get hold of their data, they could receive a letter explaining the devices will not store their name, bank details or other personal data. Equally, if a customer tells a call centre operative that they are worried about smart meters causing fires or gas explosions, they may receive safety information. MoneyMail understands that if a customer says they no longer wish to be contacted about smart meters, suppliers will be allowed to wait just a few months before beginning another barrage of letters, emails, calls and texts in a bid to change the person's mind. However, in a step forward for our Stop the Smart Meter Bullying campaign, the watchdog did tell suppliers they must avoid being overly repetitive and coercive with customers. It will mean taking into account the number of times the customers have been contacted and if tactics have angered that person. The letter urges firms to adapt the way they contact customers based on the feedback and complaints they have received. In April, MoneyMail sent a dossier of dozens of complaints to Ofgem from readers who felt bullied and harassed into accepting one of the new devices. A spokesman for the watchdog said our file had been taken into account when it wrote to suppliers published online yesterday. One of the worst offenders in our dossier, Eon, has already been ordered to change letters which did not make clear the meters were optional. Eon's letters now include the words, if you don't want a smart meter at this time, please call us and let us know. The most recent evidence sent to our offices suggests some companies are still claiming that upgrading to a smart meter is a legal requirement when it is not. Suppliers are legally required to try to install smart meters in all homes by 2020, but the government has ruled that homeowners have the right to refuse. An off-gem spokesman declined to say whether it would crack down on this practice, and in a move that would infuriate many homeowners, off-gem said firms can continue setting up installation appointments for people without obtaining their permission. The letter said these so-called deemed appointments, which upset many money mail readers, were appropriate as part of a wider suite of consumer engagement tools. However, the regulator did warn suppliers that they should stop making appointments for vulnerable people without their permission. This is likely to include the elderly and severely disabled who should now be spared the worst of the pressure tactics. The next wave of smart meter letters and emails can focus more on how the devices may help you save on your bills, of Jim indicated. Last week, MoneyMail revealed how Maureen Fenton had saved around £30 a month by changing her habits after getting a smart meter installed and regularly checking her consumption on the display screen. In a more positive development, the watchdog has ordered firms to allow any customer with a smart meter to switch their energy supplier from October. So far, 400,000 homeowners who have changed to a new company to cut costs have discovered that the smart functions, the display showing their usage and the technology that sends meter readings directly to their supplier, 
has been turned off. This is because the devices issued so far, so-called Smetzel models, only work with the supplier that installed them. The flaw in the technology is one of the key reasons some customers have rejected the devices. A computer upgrade will take place over the next five months that should allow anyone who switches to keep their smart functions. From October, all homeowners getting a new smart meter will receive a Smetzel model which can be switched between suppliers. The watchdog warns energy firms will face fines if they overstep the mark with their push to roll out smart meters. The letter, which was signed by Jackie Russell off Jones, head of smart metering and market operations, said, We are monitoring and engaging with suppliers where we see risks and misleading information being sent out to customers. Where suppliers continue to fail to address these risks, we will consider taking action. A source at a big six supplier said the letter sets out a number of problems and effectively asks suppliers to fix these themselves. We need to be more creative, but to avoid overstepping the mark, firms need to know the minimum they need to do by the 2020 deadline, and this still isn't clear. An Energy UK spokesperson said energy companies are working hard so as many people as possible experience the benefits of smart meters and to ensure the rollout is carried out safely, efficiently, and cost effectively. There's another article here about smart meters. And this is just a glimpse of the tactics the corporations use to enforce the smart meters on the public. This is in the Daily Mail. Stop the smart meter bullying. You reveal the catalogue of dirty tricks power firms are using to force us to switch to digital meters. Today, Money Mail launches a campaign to stop energy firms bullying customers into having a smart meter fitted in their homes. We've been inundated with letters, emails and calls from readers who have felt pressured and intimidated into switching their analog gas and electricity meters for digital versions. The new devices, which show how much power and gas you're using minute by minute and send that data to your supplier, are entirely optional and many people have legitimate reasons for rejecting them. For example, nearly all the meters so far installed are ones that lose their smart functions if you switch providers. Understandably, many readers want to wait until the devices are capable of working with any supplier before they make the swap. Others have privacy concerns about how energy suppliers plan to use their data, especially after the Facebook scandal, while some are worried about the safety of an electronic device being linked to their gas supply. The government has stated nobody is under any obligation to have a smart meter fitted, yet our post bag is bulging with evidence that firms routinely lead homeowners to believe they have no choice in the matter and that they must upgrade immediately. The bullying tactics include charging people more unless they accept a smart meter, setting up installation appointments for customers who haven't requested them, Reneging on pledges to stop contacting customers who feel harassed, giving people the impression they will face charges if they don't accept a free meter, bribing customers with £50 Amazon vouchers. Today, we reveal the reasons firms are using these dirty tricks and lay out our key demands which should put an end to them once and for all. Crucially, all the major energy suppliers, British Gas, Eon, SSE, Scottish Power, NPower and EDF Energy, are under enormous pressure to install 50 million smart meters in UK homes and businesses by the end of 2020. But with two and a half years to go, they can so far tick off only 11 million. 2020 is interesting because I've read out a story before about the new 5G light bulbs. And in the article, it said that the goal was to make them commonplace by 2020. And when you realize that 5G and smart technology are part of the same agenda, and are working towards the, and are basically part of the same wireless network that I'm going to explain after this article then the goal is to get both of them to be commonplace by 2020 makes sense the article goes on that means firms must fit 24 smart meters every minute between now and the deadline if they fail to meet the target power firms face fines equal to 10% of their worldwide sales in worst cases, the penalties could exceed £7 billion. Suppliers have been ordered by the government to take all reasonable steps to ensure every home has a smart meter fitted by the end of 2020. 
but firms say they have been issued no guidance on what all reasonable steps means in practice. As a result, the big six privately admit they push the boundaries as far as they can. The threat of such a huge fine is like a sword of Damocles hanging over us, says a source at one major supplier. When we've asked what all reasonable steps means, the answer has been, we'll tell you if you've done enough after the deadline. We're taking the view that the only way to prove we've done enough and avoid the fine is to have meters actually installed in homes rather than just asking customers if they want one. Money Mel's Stop the Smart Meter Bullying campaign calls on the government to relax its targets for the rollout. Ministers could either push back the 2020 deadline or reduce the number of homes in which they need to fit meters. For example, they could say suppliers must install them in only 80% of homes and businesses by this time. Privately, energy firms say this would reduce the need for bullying tactics as they could more carefully target the customers who they think would be interested. Money Mail revealed in February that suppliers estimated the cost of fitting the meters across the country had ballooned from £11 billion to more than £20 billion. This cost goes on customers' bills so it could wipe out the benefits from the energy savings they were promised they would make from seeing up-to-date usage figures and receiving accurate monthly charges. Money Mail understands some firms are concerned if they are forced to install smart meters too quickly the fitter state employee could start to cut corners. If the technology is installed poorly, it could put families at risk of fires or an explosion. I've come across stories before of smart meters exploding. The second part of Money Mail's campaign calls on the energy regulator to set out clear rules on what is and what is not an acceptable way to advertise the devices to customers. Companies should have to state clearly in large print on letters, emails, texts and during phone calls that installing a smart meter is optional and that customers have the right to say no. Off-gem must also prevent companies setting up installation appointments for customers who have not requested them. The watchdog should ban firms from reserving their best energy prices for customers who have smart meters and should crack down on the use of incentives to persuade people to sign up. Smart meters help customers save money, says Energy Minister Claire Perry. That is why we are committed to ensuring that all consumers are offered the chance to upgrade by the end of 2020. Suppliers must treat customers fairly in how they communicate with them and we expect regulator Off-gem to ensure they do. An Energy UK spokesman says companies have trialled different approaches and we're working with suppliers on good practice principles for smart meter rollout. A spokesman for Offgem says it is not compulsory to have a smart meter installed, consumers have a right to decline them and suppliers must not mislead customers. Almost seven months have passed since Money Mail first reported on energy suppliers bullying customers into getting smart meters and readers say the intimidation tactics are only getting dirtier. Every week we receive dozens of complaints from customers who have been bombarded with calls, texts and letters that make it seem like they must get the new technology fitted immediately. Some have discovered that this is not true and have written back to their suppliers, pleading for the jump mail to stop, yet the barrage rarely ceases. Anne Dagan from Stanwick Northamptonshire says she is hit by a wave of anger each time a letter arrives from her supplier, Eon. The letters she and other customers have received are some of the most aggressive money mail has seen. Some state in bold red lettering that your meters are being phased out and we need to change your meter. Readers say they were left with the impression that the changeover was a foregone conclusion even though they have the right to refuse. In July last year, Anne was receiving roughly one of these types of letters every month. She complained about being harassed and was offered a derisory £10 compensation. Eon promised that the complaint would be logged on her account and Anne would not hear about an installation for the foreseeable future. But just six months later, the letters started arriving again. In January, Eon wrote saying Anne needed to upgrade to the new equipment. Then in March an email arrived saying you recently told us you were interested in being one of the first to have a brand new smart meter. Anne says she never told Eon anything of the sort. It's so frustrating that the whole cycle has begun again. She says it's as if they wipe my records and have ignored the fact I've made two official complaints. Anne refused the £10 compensation saying it in no way reflects the annoyance she has been caused. A spokesman for Eon apologised for not removing Anne from its mailing list when she asked. Last October, Eon promised to tone down the language it uses when it contacts customers about smart meters after Money Mail reported the firm to Offgem. At the time, its correspondences said, 
It's a legal requirement and we want to keep you safe. When we replace it, we're going to give you a free self-reading meter. However, the evidence shows that the firm has continued with its bullish tactics. We have seen letters dated February 2018 that state your electricity meter is an old model that we need to replace with our free self-reading smart meter. We need to install smart meters in our customer services as part of a nationwide upgrade program. John78 from Hertfordshire received one of these letters from Eon last September. He wrote an impassioned reply telling Eon to stop pestering him but was then contacted four times in one month. Last month, he received two letters and two phone calls from the firm. An Eon spokesman apologized and the firm has now removed John from its mailing list. MoneyMail has heard several accounts of companies leading customers to believe that they could be charged for smart meter installations if they don't agree to one now. One customer who does not want to be named says it's presented like a ticking time bomb. It certainly sounds like you will end up with one whether you want it or not. This customer is with Utility Warehouse, but the firm says it has no record of ever giving customers any information that would suggest they have to pay for a smart meter. All suppliers have slightly different ways of trying to convince their customers to sign up. First Utility has offered £50 Amazon vouchers to customers who agree to have a smart meter fitted with the next month. Scottish Power has sent emails asking customers, did you know your current gas and electricity meters are being phased out and replaced with smart meters? SSE writes to customers with traditional meters that are nearing the end of their lifespan. It then offers smart meters as replacements. EDF letters say important, book your smart meter change now. Last year, we caught firms booking smart meter installation appointments for customers even though they hadn't requested one. The evidence you've sent to our post bag shows this practice is continuing at an alarming rate. Kathy Ralph, 65, struggled to contain her outrage when Empower emailed her saying an appointment had been booked for a smart meter to be fitted when she hadn't asked for one and does not want a new meter. The email sent by MoneyMail states your new smart meters are coming. Confirm your Empower smart meter appointment. The retired radio producer was told she had an appointment in two weeks' time. The email continues, we'd like to come and fit your smart meters, but can only guarantee we'll be able to fit them if you confirm this date or choose a new one within the next five days. Kathy cancelled the appointment and asked for no further communication from Empower about dual fuel smart meters. She says, I've never heard of being given an appointment that I hadn't asked for. It's a bit rich because when you do want something sorted, it's almost impossible to get an appointment with Empower. A spokesman for Empower says that offering appointments in this way is in line with the smart metering installation code of practice. In January, the Mail reported that energy giants have been accused of flouting trading laws by pressuring homeowners into getting smart meters. Some firms were making it sound like a legal requirement to replace your meter. Trading standards chiefs told power firms giving customers this impression breached consumer law. The Charter Trading Standards Institute wrote to Energy UK, which represents big suppliers, to raise concerns about the way that firms are marketing the meters. Yet many mail readers said their suppliers under huge pressure to keep rolling out smart meters are still using hard sell ploys. George McClure, 70, will lose £144 a year if he doesn't sign up for a smart meter with his current provider. The retired headmaster and his wife Maureen, also 70, have paid £90 a month for dual fuel with First Utility for the past five years. They were told their current tariff will change to £98 if they renew next month. But this deal is only valid if a smart meter is installed. Without a smart meter, the best deal the couple can get is £110 a month. George doesn't want one but also doesn't want to overspend on his energy. He says it's an underhand way to force my hand but I refuse to have a device in my home that undermines my privacy. There's a lot worse than that, as I'll get to. A spokesman for First Utility says the firm makes clear when a customer signs up that the tariff they've offered is dependent on having a smart meter installed within six months. Saverio D'Amico, 67, says he felt tricked into accepting a smart meter after he was sent a seemingly innocuous letter claiming his analogue electricity meter had reached the end of his lifespan. The retired engineer from Peterborough followed the letter's instructions to telephone Eon to arrange a light-for-light -light replacement. Instead, he was greeted by a smart meter advisor who thanked him for requesting the new technology. Severio says, I felt duped, like they'd used mind tricks to roll me in. I was a bit flustered throughout the phone call and the advisor just kept talking over me. So in the end, I accepted it and had the meter installed. Severio was unaware that sticking with an analogue meter was an option for him. 
A spokesman for E.ON says that Silverio didn't contact the firm to say he didn't want a smart meter. It said it was in the process of updating its letters and emails to make it clearer that smart meters are not compulsory. The spokesman adds, we're obliged to contact our customers about upgrading their smart meters as part of our commitment to Ofgem. A spokesman for Energy UK says the energy industry has installed more than 11 million smart meters in the UK. Customers have reported high levels of satisfaction overall for both the smart meter itself, 80%, and the installation visit, 89%. Energy companies are working hard to enable as many people as possible to experience the benefits that smart meters bring, well, hardly any, and to ensure the rollout is carried out safely, efficiently and cost-effectively. Suppliers remain committed to meeting the government's deadline of ensuring all households and businesses are offered a smart meter by 2020. And there's a little section here. How I fought the bullies on £150. Last autumn, a new type of jump mail began to appear among the pizza menus in charity begging letters on the doormat of my West London flat. Sent in official looking envelopes, they came from my gas and electricity supplier. First utility, each instructed me to upgrade to a smart meter in order to get your gas and electricity bills under control. And I've never decided to take a day off so workmen can fit a vaguely Orwellian device that will almost certainly become useless when I switch supplier. The letters were consigned swiftly to the bin. Various similar emails meant the same fate too. Nevertheless, the marketing blitz continued. One day in mid-October, things took a more intrusive turn when lunch was interrupted by the ping of a text message. It was just a friendly reminder from First Utility to call our partner Siemens on an 0345 number to arrange your smart meter installation. Irritated by this increasingly high-pressure campaign, I wrote to the energy company, formally asking it to stop contacting me about smart meters. A simple request, one might think, but it was not to be. In response, First Utility claimed that it would take me off its own smart meter mailing list. Yet, somewhat bizarrely, it added that this wouldn't actually prevent new text messages from arriving. These had apparently been sent by Siemens, a German technology firm it had hired as a subcontractor to install the devices. To prevent this other firm from continuing to bother me, I was politely advised to contact them directly. There are several problems with this response, not least that I had no contractual relationship with Siemens and no memory of agreeing to have my personal phone number shared with it or anyone else. I therefore asked First Utility to explain why it had passed it on and when, if ever, I'd consented. Its response? A boilerplate message claiming it had been handed out as part of a government-led initiative to let every household know about smart meters by 2020. Since this was obviously false, the government has not instructed utility firms to give our personal data to third parties. I did what every consumer messed around by an energy company ought to do with the earliest opportunity and declared that I wished to raise a formal complaint. There followed one of the more Kafka-esque experiences in my adult life in which a succession of the firm's case handlers sent a variety of evasive emails claiming the processes are in line with the Data Protection Act. Awkwardly for them at least, the marketing wing of First Utility wasn't listening. As a result, the firm continued despite my repeated requests to send out regular pushy messages pestering me to accept a smart meter. During the month that followed my original complaint, I received three more unsolicited emails, several containing very basic grammatical errors, one letter, and on November the 21st, yet another irritating text message. By Christmas, following several apologies, along with an attempt of first utility to declare my complaint closed, I gave the firm a week to sort its act out, before I escalated things to off-chem and the information commissioner. Amazingly, they telephoned me within a few days, offering £50 compensation and promising correctly this time that the hectoring would finally stop. I went away a little richer and a lot more certain that energy jars are the opposite of smart. And there's a, another section here, small section at the end of the article. Cut your energy bills. If you have been stuck with the same provider for some time, chances are you could shave hundreds off your energy bills. Millions of households are sat on their provider's most expensive out of contract deals, but switching to a better deal can instantly save you money. According to This Is Money and Mail Online's expert partner service, Energy Helpline, one in ten families could cut their annual draw fuel bit by £537 a year by ditching and switching. So, it's also interesting to note that smart meters have been installed for some people by force. They haven't even consulted with the homeowner, they've just come along and 
forcibly install the smart meter. Now, of course, there's concerns about privacy, there's concerns about whether it actually saves you money, there's concerns about the possibility of incorrect installation and the smart meter exploding, but there's nothing here, or in the previous article, about the radiation emitted from smart meters. Smart meters are an absolute abomination for human health. I talked about smart meters in episode one. The American Cancer Association says smart meters have not been studied to see if they cause health problems. Why? Because if they were, smart meters would never be allowed to be unleashed on the public. If they were independently, genuinely, thoroughly tested and investigated, smart meters would never be allowed to be sold or installed. Smart meters work with EMF radiation, electromagnetic frequency radiation and EMF and ELF, extremely low frequency radiation. Those two types of radiation encompass mobile phones, Wi-Fi, 5G, smart meters, and other wireless devices and technology. It's a very distorted information field coming into contact with the body. Anyone think that might have an effect? This is the point people miss. This is the point people don't grasp because they think human society is run as it is for the benefit of the people, and it's structured as it is because it's the only way to do it. It's not either of those. The concerns and problems with smart meters like radiation, energy bills, privacy are planned. All the problems smart meters cause are the very reason they exist in the first place. Same with 5G. The benefits or alleged benefits are just a cover, nothing more. This is why there have been stories of people who have found out that the smart meters don't do what they marketed to do, because that's not what they're there to do. That's just the cover. This is the switch in perception people need if they're gonna understand the world and society. Smart meters are massively part of the depopulation agenda, which I've talked about many times before. They're also part of the transhumanism agenda, which entails a wireless network of information fields from smart and other devices to which the human mind will be attached via technology on and in the body, not least nanotechnology, smart dust, neural dust, digital dust which is beyond the ability of the human eye to see. And I'm absolutely convinced that nanotechnology is in what are known as chemtrails, which are condensation trails, in terms of the way they look until they expand out and they contain metals and chemicals and nanotechnology. Um, when you see a chemtrail being made, you see the jet plane going across the sky with the trail behind it. It looks like contrails, but the difference between contrails and chemtrails is Contrails disappear very quickly, and then there's a bit more, then that disappears, and then there's a bit more, then that disappears. That's just the exhaust of the plane. Chemtrails, and it's very clever in the way it's done. It's sinister, but it's very clever, because they know most people will mistake it for clouds, or when they're being made in the sky, originally, people will mistake it for contrails, because if people don't know about chemtrails, then they've got no other possibility to question what they're seeing in the sky. Conditions like Alzheimer's have been on the rise massively in recent years, and it's been suggested that aluminium could cause it. Well, where's that aluminium coming from? Aluminium comes from various sources, as does nanotechnology, by the way. But one of them, I'm absolutely convinced, is the sky. And I've talked about chemtrails before, and nanotechnology before, and transhumanism before many times, but especially episode 11, I really go into it. And the idea, is that nanotechnology, and people like Ray Kurzweil, the Google executive, Google's massively involved with transhumanism, the monster Google. Ray Kurzweil is a global promoter of transhumanism. There's no way he won't know, working for Google, 
what the truth of transhumanism is, but the idea as he talks about and writes about, nanotechnology will enter the pathways of the brain and connect the human mind to this wireless network of information I mentioned just now, which he calls the cloud. Another name for it is the smart grid, a global cloud, a global smart grid, and the human mind will be connected to this via smart dust, and a definition of smart dust is it can communicate with any other form of smart technology. And 5G is what will be necessary to run this cloud, this wireless network, this smart grid, and that's why they are trying to get 5G out everywhere. And smart meters are massively part of this smart grid and the cloud, the smart grid to which the human mind will be attached via nanotechnology and other technology on and in the body will be run by artificial intelligence. So that's the big picture of smart readers. In terms of writing to energy suppliers or, e or emailing or calling to opt out of a smart meter, what people need to do is write to or email these companies and let them know in no uncertain terms, and I mean in no uncertain terms, that they're not having a smart meter installed on their property and that's the end of it. And if a smart meter is installed, then people need to let the companies know that they will go to the media with their story, as the people who have contacted the Daily Mail, which led to them writing this article, have done. And not just the Daily Mail, other newspapers, of course, some won't bother with it, but obviously the Daily Mail will. The more people that do it, the more the issue gets highlighted until the media can't ignore it anymore and have to cover it. Fortunately, the Daily Mail is covering it now, and they say it's part of a campaign. So that's great. We have the numbers, the balls in our court, if only people would realise that and act upon it. It may seem to be these giant corporations, but without their customers' support and with the media covering what they're doing, their power is gone. It's the people who make the corporations what they are. If people do nothing else to make a contribution towards bringing the elite's global agenda to an end and the nightmare world that we are already in to an extent, never mind what's coming, at the very least, refuse under any circumstances to allow smart meters and 5G anywhere near where you live. If people only do those two things ever, that's the only two things people ever do, then that's a massive contribution on its own. That and refusing vaccinations. I would add that in as well from information I've looked at over the past 10 years now since I started to see the world very differently. Those three things would be a massive contribution. The reason they want to enforce smart meters is because smart technology is massively part of the transhumanism agenda. That's the real reason. And smart meters contribute to the depopulation agenda. And you could say, looking at the fact that people have found they don't save them money, you could look at that and say, well, that makes a contribution towards the Hunger Games Society, which I talk about in episode four, if, you, if you've not heard me talk about that before. And you could make that case, but really the real two reasons they want smart meters is transhumanism and depopulation and also if we go deeper into this which i don't do on pay-per-view but i do elsewhere they want to change the atmosphere and radiation is massively part of that yes for depopulation but not only so they won't take no for an answer unless we make them take no for an answer because we have the numbers and if we use them it's game over for smart meters and 5g it's a choice, so we have to make it now before it's too late. Article here about statins. This is in the Daily Mail. Statins may increase people's risk of incurable motor neurone disease by up to 100 times, study finds. Statins may increase people's risk of incurable motor neurone disease, new research suggests. 
The drugs which combat high cholesterol make people up to 100 times more likely to suffer symptoms of the condition that famously affected the late Professor Sir Stephen Hawking, a study found. Lead author Professor Beatrice Galombe from the University of San Diego said, These findings add to concerns about a possible connection between statin use and the development of MND. Until better evidence is available, prompt statin withdrawal should be considered. Previous research suggests cholesterol may play a role in protecting people against MND. However, many scientists dispute this. At least 8 million adults in the UK take statins every day to reduce their risk of heart disease, while around 5,000 people suffer from MND. Results further suggest statin users are between 9 and 100 times more likely to suffer from motor neuron disease symptoms with side effects depending on the type of medication they take. The researchers believe some people may be more vulnerable to the effects of statins than others. Dr. Nicholas Cole from the Motor Neuron Disease Association said, Previous studies have examined if taking statins is a risk factor for the development of the disease and whether they can influence the rate that motor neuron disease progresses. In October 2012, a review of the six available scientific papers concluded that there was no definite association between statin use and MND incidental progression. Further investigation into this may provide another piece of the MND puzzle. Ashley Doggett, a senior cardiac nurse at the British Heart Foundation, added, As with all medications, there are potential side effects, but we know side effects from statins are thankfully rare. That's the official line, anyway. It is important to discuss with your doctor before stopping any medication, as this could put you at increased risk of a heart attack or stroke. Yeah, but so can taking medication, depending on what it is. The researchers analysed records from the US drug approving body, the FDA, on medication side effects. Their findings were published in the journal Drug Safety. Study found no statins have no evidence for heart health. This comes after research released last July suggested statins have no consistent evidence of improving heart attack patient survival. Taking a daily statin for five years after a heart attack extends your life by just four days of study by the Friendly Health NHS Foundation Trust found. The researchers add statin and supposed benefits are based on cherry-picked science and are unjustly prompted by pharmaceutical giants. Heart attack survivors should instead aim to improve their health through diet and exercise, they add. Pharmaceutical medicine and drugs are a scam. I'll talk about pharmaceutical drugs in episode 2. Pharmaceutical drug side effects, so-called, are actually effects under another name. They're just not the effects the drug is marketed or prescribed for. You've got doctors prescribing drugs who only know as much as they're told about what the drug does by the drug companies, owned by the elite, ultimately. And you've got the drug companies owned by the elite manufacturing the drug, with most people involved clueless, thinking the drug will do what they're told it will do, just like the doctors and the patients, while those who own the drug companies know the effects it will have. Once again, I come back to my point that I made when I talked about smart meters. The negative effects are why it's being done in the first place. In addition to all this, you've got doctors being paid to prescribe certain drugs without any concern for the patient, and I'm sure there will be some who are paid who are as clueless of the negative effects of the drug as the genuine doctors are, but the end result is the same at the end of the day. One thing that's worth pointing out is people get ill from crap food and drink and living within a sea of radiation, not least from smart meters and other smart and wireless technological devices. And they get ill from toxins in food and drink and even cleaning products and cosmetics. They take in substances like BPA from various sources, including teal receipts. Then they go to the doctors to get rid of the health problem caused in many cases by one or more of these sources. And the doctor prescribes them pharmaceutical drugs, which can make them worse. The key point to make is that all of these sources are ultimately working towards the same end. Goal is to destroy people's health because if you want to have a global agenda of control and manipulation, which relies on control and manipulation to survive. 
then you don't want a sharp thinking, aware, healthy population who can see through your manipulation. You want an unhealthy, dumbed-down population. Also, if you have a depopulation agenda, then this is how you go about achieving that agenda. This is an interesting article from Life Extension magazine. This was published in 2004. It says some interesting things. Death by medicine. Something is wrong when regulatory agencies pretend that vitamins are dangerous yet ignore published statistics showing that government-sanctioned medicine is the real hazard. Exactly what I've just been saying. Until now, Life Extension could cite only isolated statistics to make its case about the dangerous conventional medicine. No one had ever analysed or combined all of the published literature dealing with injuries and deaths caused by government-protected medicine. That has now changed. A group of researchers statistically reviewed the statistical evidence and their findings are absolutely shocking. These researchers have authored a paper titled Death by Medicine that presents compelling evidence that today's system frequently causes more harm than good. This fully referenced report shows the number of people having in-hospital adverse reactions to prescribed drugs to be 2.2 million per year. The number of unnecessary antibiotics prescribed annually for viral infections is 20 million per year. The number of unnecessary medical and surgical procedures performed annually is 7.5 million per year. The number of people exposed to unnecessary hospitalization annually is 8.9 million per year. The most stunning statistic, however, is that the total number of deaths caused by conventional medicine is an astounding 783,936 per year. It is now evident that the American medical system is the leading cause of death and injury in the US. That's interesting because I've seen claims in more recent years that that is still the case. So obviously not much has, if those claims are true, then not much has changed since 2004 when this article was published. It goes on, by contrast, the number of deaths attributable to heart disease in 2001 was 699,697, while the number of deaths attributable to cancer was 553,251. We had intended to publish the entire text of Death by Medicine in this month's issue. The article uncovered so many problems with conventional medicine, however, that it became too long to fit within these pages. And there's another part of the article here by Gary Knoll, PhD, Carolyn Dean, MD, Martin Feldman, MD, Deborah Rassio, MD, and Dorothy Smith, PhD. Natural medicine is under siege as pharmaceutical company lobbyists urge lawmakers to deprive Americans of the benefits of dietary supplements. Drug company front groups have launched slanderous media campaigns to discredit the value of healthy lifestyles. The FDA continues to interfere with those who offer natural products that compete with prescription drugs. These attacks against natural medicine obscure a lethal problem that until now is buried in thousands of pages of scientific text. In response to these baseless challenges to natural medicine, the Nutrition Institute of America commissioned an independent review of the quality of government-approved medicine. The startling findings from this meticulous study indicate that conventional medicine is the leading cause of death in the United States. The Nutrition Institute of America is a non-profit organization that has sponsored independent research for the past 30 years to support its bold claim that conventional medicine is America's number one killer. The Nutritional Institute of America mandated that every count in this indictment of U.S. medicine be validated by published peer-reviewed scientific studies. Over 700,000 Americans die each year at the hands of government-sanctioned medicine, while the FDA and other government agencies pretend to protect the public by harassing those who offer safe alternatives. Well, as I said, this is published in 2004, but that is still going on. I've talked about it before. A definitive review of medical peer-reviewed journals and government health statistics show that American medicine frequently causes more harm than good. Each year, approximately 2.2 million U.S. hospital patients experience adverse drug reactions to prescribed medications. 
1995, Dr. Richard Besser of the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated the number of unnecessary antibiotics prescribed annually for viral infections to be 20 million. In 2003, Dr. Besser spoke in terms of tens of millions of unnecessary antibiotics prescribed annually. Approximately 7.5 million unnecessary medical and surgical procedures are performed annually in the US, while approximately 8.9 million Americans are hospitalized unnecessarily. The estimated total number of iatrogenic deaths, that is, deaths induced inadvertently by a physician or surgeon or by medical treatment or by diagnostic procedures in the US annually is 782,936. By comparison, approximately 699,697 Americans died of heart problems in 2001, while 553,251 died of cancer. The first iatrogenic study. Dr. Lucien L. Leap opened Medicine's Pandora's Box in his 1994 paper, Error in Medicine, which appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association. He found that Schimmel reported in 1964 that 20% of hospital patients suffered iatrogenic injury with a 20% fatality rate. In 1981, Steele reported that 36 of hospitalized patients experienced iatrogenesis with a 25% fatality rate and adverse drug reactions were involved in 50% of the injuries. In 1991, Bedell reported that 64% of acute heart attacks in one hospital were, were preventable and were mostly due to adverse drug reactions. This is interesting. Drugs pollute our water supply. We have reached the point of saturation with prescription drugs. Every body of water tested contains measurable drug residues. The tons of antibiotics used in animal farming which run off into the water table and surrounding bodies of water are conferring antibiotic resistance to germs in sewage and these germs are also found in our water supply. Flushed down our toilets are tons of drugs and drug metabolites that also find their way into our water supply. We have no way to know the long-term health consequences of ingesting a mixture of drugs and drug breakdown products. These drugs represent another level of iatrogenic disease that we are unable to completely measure. And it will be the same nowadays. That's something I've come across from other sources over the years. Water contains chemicals and pharmaceutical drugs and goodness knows what else. People say water is good for you. Well, it should be good for you, but it's not in reality. Certain places may be better than others. Fluoride is something else in water, which is another substance that is very different to what we're told it is. It's a neurotoxin and yet it's used in toothpaste. But then mercury is used in tooth filling, so, I mean, why not? People talk about chemical baths. Well, if you want a chemical bath, just run the tap. Just run the tap in the way that you normally would to run a bath, and you've got a chemical bath. One, obviously, is much more pleasant than the other, but they're the same in principle in that it's a bath full of chemicals. We live in an increasingly toxic world, and if you've got a depopulation agenda, then you've got to hit people in as many different ways as you can. You can't just do it one way. So you've got medical treatment and pharmaceutical drugs. You've got toxins in food and drink. You've got other crap in food and drink. You've got GMO, which is not only genetically modified food or animals, it's also animals that are fed genetically modified feed which then crosses over to people when they eat any products that either are the animal itself or the products that have come from the animal like dairy products for example you've got chemtrails you've got chemicals like bpa all over the place you've got radiation from technology you've got chemicals in cleaning products and cosmetics which people put on their skin you've got 
chemicals and cleaning products which people use to clean surfaces. I mean, it's stunning if people saw the extent of toxin and chemical and other attempts to destroy health. They would be staggered if they'd not come across it before. And it's not happening by accident, it's all coldly calculated towards the end of the end of a large percentage of humanity. Smart meters, and especially 5G, are planned to play a massive role in that. I'm sure smart meters already have, to an extent, for those that have them, homes and businesses that have smart meters. But 5G is beyond even a smart meter. It's going to be catastrophic if we allow it to be, and it will kill a significant amount of the population. It's not... I mean, people talk about Wi-Fi being harmful radiation, and it is. That should not be underestimated. It's easy to look at Wi-Fi in comparison to 5G and think Wi-Fi's alright, Wi-Fi's okay, 5G is the problem. No, Wi-Fi is harmful radiation as well, but 5G is just much worse, that's the point. The most observable difference between the two is that it will be much more obvious with 5G, if we allow it. This is an interesting article on cancer. This is on Reuters.com. This was published in 2010. Cancer will kill 13.2 million a year by 2030, United Nations. 2030, that year again, keeps cropping up all the time, I've said that before. Cancer will kill more than 13.2 million people a year by 2030, almost double the number who died from the disease in 2008, the United Nations Cancer Research Agency said on Tuesday. The International Agency for Research on Cancer also said that almost 21.4 million new cases of the disease will be diagnosed annually in 2030. Launching a new database on global incidence of cancer in 2008, the latest year for which figures are available, at the time the article was published in 2010, the IARC said the burden of cancer was shifting from wealthier to poorer nations. Cancer is neither rare anywhere in the world, nor confined to high-resource countries, it said in a statement. In total, 7.6 million people died of cancer in 2008 and there were an estimated 12.7 new cases diagnosed. Around 56% of the new cancer cases worldwide in 2008 were in developing countries and these regions also accounted for 63% of all cancer deaths, the data showed. IARC Director Christopher Wilde said the data represented the most accurate available assessment of the global burden of cancer and would help international health policymakers develop their responses. The most commonly diagnosed cancers worldwide in 2008 were lung cancer with 1.61 million cases, breast cancer with 1.38 million, and cholesterol cancers with 1.23 million. The most common causes of cancer death were lung, 1.38 million, stomach, 0.74 million, and liver cancer, 0.69 million. The projection for annual death rates of 13.2 million and annual diagnosis of 21.4 million were based on assumptions that underlying rates of cancer would remain the same over the next two decades, the IARC said. Cancer is everywhere now and when a illness is to that extent for as long as cancer has been around then you have to ask the question why? What's causing it? And radiation from smart meters and other wireless technology is one of the main causes and it will go through the roof with 5G if we allow it. But there's other causes as well and I said before about cancer Talk about cancer in episode 14 and there is a very good website which I'll link to when I upload this episode which talks about the claims of a guy called Dr. Richard Day in 1969. He addressed a meeting of paediatricians in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and no one seems to know why but he, according to one 
particular paediatrician there called Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan, he told these paediatricians to turn off any recording equipment, not to take any notes, because he was going to tell them how the world was going to change. He was involved with Planned Parenthood, which is a Rockefeller organisation. The Rockefellers are one of the elite families, second only to the Rothschilds in terms of where they are in the hierarchy. Before Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan died, he did a series of interviews about what they said, audio interviews. And one of the things he said was relevant to what we're talking about now. There's so much he said. It's given the headline on this website, Suppressing Cancer Cures as a Means of Population Control. And this website, I don't know if it works anymore, but this website did offer the opportunity to listen to what Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan said. And this is what Lawrence Dunnigan said about cancer cures. During the meeting in Pittsburgh, Dr. Day touched on the subject of cancer and what he relayed to his audience shocked them. And many readers find his revelation shocking also. Dr. Day said we can cure almost every cancer right now. Information is on file in the Rockefeller Institute if it's ever decided that it should be released. Well, don't hold your breath for that. Dr. Dunningham records what Dr. Day said very clearly because he found it unbelievable, as did the other attendees, that an institute could effectively treat one of the most destructive diseases known to humanity would withhold that knowledge. Well, it's not so unbelievable when you know the mentality running our world. Dr. Day continued, but consider, if people stopped dying of cancer, how rapidly we would become overpopulated. You may as well die of cancer or something else. This is the way these people think. He then went on to explain that treatment would be geared more towards easing some of the symptoms and making the sufferer comfortable rather than a cure. Although the Rockefeller Institute have taken precautions to hide the information within the Institute, Dr. Day said that one day it may come to light if independent researchers get close to developing the same technology and cure. Yeah, but if they did, chances are it's going to be suppressed. Do we not believe that with all the billions donated for cancer research that they haven't found a cure, but it's been suppressed? Isn't that more likely rather than we haven't found one yet? And the only choices we've got, or the best choices we've got, is chemotherapy, which kills cells. It doesn't just kill cancer cells, it kills cells. And yes, there is more targeted chemotherapy, but it's still capable of killing regular cells. And radiotherapy, which is radiation, which as I've said, is a major cause of cancer. You know, with all the billions donated, surely they've come up with other treatments by now. But they've been suppressed because the idea is not to treat it, it's to profit from it on one level, but also to allow it to continue because you want to use it as population control. The article goes on. But for the time being, letting people die of cancer was a good thing because it would slow down the problem of overpopulation. Well, translate that, what that means is it will help towards depopulation. As were the attendees at the meeting, any normal thinking person may disbelieve that an organisation which purports to research cures and new medical treatments would withhold this vital information. But as we have seen many times, where there is power and money, anything can happen, especially when the supporters of eugenics are involved. And I said Dr Richard Day was involved with Planned Parenthood, which is a eugenics operation. And when you look at what Dr Richard Day said in 1969, according to Dr Lawrence Dunnigan, it's astonishing. I mean, even if Day didn't say all this, and Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan is lying, which I, I don't think he is, I don't know what reason he would have to lie, but even if he was, whoever said it, whoever wrote it, obviously knows a great deal about what the agenda is in every way possible. This is an interesting article on the Consumer Reports website, which is 
they say on their website, an independent non-profit organization that works with consumers for truth, transparency and fairness in the marketplace. We use our rigorous research, consumer insights, journalism, policy expertise to inform purchase decisions, improve the products and services the businesses deliver and drive regulatory and fair competitive practices. This is an article in their magazine. This was published in 2012. How safe is your hospital? Our new ratings find that some are riskier than others. Hospitals should be places you go to get better, but too often the opposite happens. Infections, surgical mistakes and other medical harm contribute to the deaths of 180,000 hospital patients a year, according to projections based on a 2010 report from the Department of Health and Human Services. Another 1.4 million are seriously hurt by their hospital care, and those figures apply only to Medicare patients. What happens to other people is less clear because most hospital errors go unreported and hospitals report on only a fraction of the things that can go wrong. I'll just read that last line again so you can take in the extent of it. What happens to other people is less clear because most hospital errors go unreported and hospitals report on only a fraction of things that can go wrong. So what must the real figure be? There is an epidemic of healthcare harm, says Rosemary Gibson, a patient safety advocate and author. More than 2.25 million Americans will probably die from medical harm in this decade, she says. That's like wiping out the entire populations of North Dakota, Rhode Island and Vermont. It's a man-made disaster. Some hospitals have responded to the crisis with safety initiatives such as electronic prescribing to help prevent drug errors and checklists to prevent infections with some success. Rates of central line bloodstream infections, for example, have dropped by 32% since 2008, according to the National Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But more needs to be done. Hospitals haven't given safety the attention it deserves, says Peter Provenost, MD, Senior Vice President for Patient Safety and Quality, at Johns Hopkins Medicine in Baltimore. Nor has the government, he says. Medical harm is probably one of the three leading causes of death in the US, but the government doesn't adequately track it as it does deaths from automobiles, plane crashes and cancer. It's appalling. The article goes on. That lack of information not only makes it difficult to define the extent of the problem, but also makes it challenging for patients to know about the safety of the hospitals in their communities. To address that problem, Consumer Reports has for the first time rented hospitals for safety, using the most current data available to us at the time of our analysis. It includes information from government and independent sources on 1,159 hospitals in 44 states. For this article, we also interviewed patients, physicians, hospital administrators and safety experts, reviewed medical literature and led to hospital inspections and investigations. Still, our ratings include only 18% of US hospitals because data on patient harm still isn't reported fully or consistently nationwide. Hospitals that volunteer safety information regardless of their score deserve credit since the first step in safety is accountability, says John Santa, MD, Director of the Consumer Reports Health Rating Centre. But the fact that consumers can't get a full picture of most hospitals in the US underscores the need for more public reporting. Despite that limitation, our safety ratings provide a unique way to compare hospitals in your community and they yield important insights into the state of hospital safety nationwide and what you need to do to protect yourself or someone you care for when entering a hospital. What we found, we focus on six categories in our safety ratings. Infections, readmissions, communication, CT scanning, complications and mortality. Some experts question those measures. Readmission rates, for example, might be higher among hospitals that care for patients with little home or community support, says David M. Shahayan, MD, Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School and Associate Medical Director. An associate medical director at the Center for Quality and Safety at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. But our ratings are based on the best data we have about what happens to patients in hospital, Sachter says. Here are some of the most important findings from our analysis. Bad things happen in all hospitals, but they happen a lot in some. The lowest score in hospital 
Sacred Heart Hospital in Chicago, earned just a 16 on our 100-point safety scale and reported a rate of bloodstream infections that was more than twice the national benchmark. Even high-scoring hospitals can do better. Billings Clinic in Montana was at the top of our list, but it got a safety score of just 72. The work is hard, says Mark Rumans, MD, the hospital's physician-in-chief. We are far from perfect. Some well-known hospitals have less than outstanding safety scores. That includes Massachusetts General Hospital Boston with a safety score of 45, Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center Los Angeles 43, Cleveland Clinic 39, New York Presbyterian New York 32, Mount Sinai Medical Center New York 30. Our ratings are an important measure, but they're not the only source you should consult. They don't, for example, assess how successful hospitals are treating medical conditions. So before a planned hospital stay, consult multiple sources. And although this focuses on America, it will be the same in other countries too, including Britain, especially at the moment, as the NHS is being run down in an effort to privatise it. But of course, those behind that agenda don't care that that means that in the period between it being run down and it being privatised, or at least that's the agenda for it to be privatised, it's going to mean a lack of quality healthcare for many people. They don't care about that, in fact that serves their agenda. Deadly infections. Despite worsening back pain, Patrick Roth of Dartmouth in Massachusetts left to ride his bicycle, but that was before back surgery in 2007 at age 65. The procedure was followed by several complications, including an infection with a potentially deadly bacterium. Roth says he didn't understand he had the infection until he transferred to a new hospital. Now he rides a mobility scooter instead of a bike and is learning to live with the side effects of daily antibiotics, he says. An estimated 290,000 surgical site infections occur each year in US hospitals, and Roth's is an example of the agony they can cause. A few days after his surgery, Roth was in so much pain he had to return to the hospital. He was there for 12 days, most of which he can't remember because of the pain medication he was given. He can no longer walk unassisted. The pain becomes too intense, he says. Only 544 of the hospitals on our ratings have data for surgical site infections from 14 states that require their public reporting. Of those hospitals, 82 reported zero such infections. Infections linked to central line catheters may be even more worrisome. They kill up to 16,250 patients a year, research suggests. They're also almost entirely preventable, yet 202 hospitals reported infections at rates higher than the benchmark used by the CDC, and only 148 reported zero infections. Central line infections are the canary in the coal mine for patient safety, says Pronovost at Johns Hopkins Medicine. In one study, 60% of hospitals that used an infection prevention checklist he developed eliminated all central line infections in their intensive care units for at least a year. And follow-up research shows that those hospitals saw a 10% drop in their overall death rates. Johns Hopkins hospitals had less than half the rate of infections in the national benchmark, but we couldn't rate it for safety because Maryland hospitals don't participate in the standard Medicare payment system that's also used to collect data for some of the measures in our ratings. Readmissions. Having to return to the hospital soon after going home could be a sign that something went wrong during the initial stage, such as an infection that worsens after you get home. And the more you enter the hospital, the greater the chance something else will go wrong. Research suggests up to three quarters of readmissions may be preventable. No hospital earned our highest score for readmissions. 166 hospitals received our lowest score. Our readmissions rating is based on data from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which tracks patients hospitalized for heart attack, heart failure, and pneumonia, who are readmitted to a hospital within 30 days of being discharged. 166 hospitals received our lowest score. Unclear instructions. Clear communication in the hospital is hard to come by. Almost 500 hospitals earned our lowest score for communication about new medications and discharge plans, and none earned our top score. 
Clear communication in the hospital is hard to come by. Almost 500 hospitals earned our lowest score for communication about new medications and discharge plans, and none earned our top score. That's a problem because drug errors in hospitals are common and sometimes serious and poor discharge planning can lead to readmissions. The scores are based on questions answered by millions of discharged patients in a federally mandated survey. Radiation overload. I've already mentioned radiation. CT scans can provide essential diagnostic information, but they pose risks too. Radiation from CT scans, which are equivalent to between 100 and 500 chest x-rays, might contribute to an estimated 29,000 future cancers a year, a 2009 study suggests. And what's one of the ways they try to treat cancer? Radiotherapy. Even after all the billions that have been donated for cancer research. Our ratings report the percentage of chest and abdominal CT scans that are ordered twice for the same patient, once with contrast and once without. Probably less than 1% of patients undergoing chest CT scans should get double scans, says James Brink, MD, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic Radiology at Yale University School of Medicine. Double scans of the abdomen are needed more frequently, often to define abnormalities in the liver, kidney and pancreas, he says. But only 20% of the hospitals in our ratings have double scan rates of 5% or less in both categories, which is the cutoff we use for a top rating. Brink says that referring doctors often assume that double scans provide more useful information than single scans. Radiologists should question such orders, he says. What needs to happen? The federal government recently provided funding of $218 million to 26 hospital groups nationwide to improve hospital safety and provide it up to $500 million programs to help Medicare patients transition from hospital to home. And hospitals now have financial incentives to use electronic health records. But more needs to be done. Those carrots are fine, but we need some sticks too, says Lisa McGifford, director of the Safe Patient Project to Consumers Union. The advocacy arm of consumer reports. For example, Medicare withholds payments for some procedures that lead to patient harm, but it should also require hospitals to pay for the follow-up tests and treatments that those errors lead to, she says. Consumers Union believes that national systems should track and publicly report medical errors. The Institute of Medicine recommended that more than a decade ago. The public assumes that someone keeps track of all that goes wrong, but that is just not the case, McGifford says. Also, Consumers Union says hospital administrators and regulators need to listen more to the people most affected by medical harm, patients. Regulators must investigate those complaints and use them to identify hospitals with patterns of problems. Changes in the courtroom could help too by relaxing the gag orders and secret settlements that often prevent harmed patients from telling their stories. The best cure for medical harm is full disclosure, McGifford says. Mary Flowers, MD of Montgomery, Alaska, agrees. She says her father entered the hospital for a procedure related to dialysis and never walked out because of one error after another. Problems included a punctured colon, bed sores and a serious infection. The biggest problem, she says, wasn't the mistakes, but the time it took for the hospital to acknowledge them. I'm a doctor, I know we're not perfect, she says, but we need to listen to our patients and when mistakes happen, own up so we can fix them or at least keep them from happening again. There is a war on health because that's what needs to happen for the elite's agenda to succeed and because it plays into the depopulation agenda. This is the switch in perception I mentioned earlier. Once you understand the mentality around the world and that there's an elite with an agenda and that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven, once you've got that switch in perception, in understanding, then everything morphs into clarity. story here about a Labour MP and her comments about Palestine, but really it's a story about Zionism, which I've talked about before in episode 10. This is the article in the Daily Mail. A would-be Labour MP has withdrawn from the race to run in a by-election days after she was reportedly exposed for comparing the Palestine conflict to the Holocaust. Well, Gaza in Palestine, which is a tiny area of land, it's an open-air concentration camp 
It's a simple fact. Palestinians are undergoing regular genocide. A definition of genocide is the systematic and widespread extermination or attempted extermination of an entire national, racial, religious or ethnic group. That is what is happening in Palestine. Phil Apokugyama, supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, had thrown a hat in the ring to run on the safe Labour seat of Lewisham East after Heidi Alexander stood down to work for the London Mayor. But she faced a storm of criticism after reports emerged she compared the plight of the Palestinians with that of the Jews in the 1930s on Holocaust Memorial Day last year. Yeah, because there's a clear similarity. According to the Guido Fawkes website, she wrote on Facebook, Today is the day when you remember all those affected by the Holocaust, Nazi persecution, the subsequent genocides in Cambodia, Bosnia, Rwanda and Darfur. I'm adding Palestinian to the list. Yes, because Palestinians are undergoing regular genocide at the hands of the Israeli army. It's a modern Holocaust for the Palestinians. While Britain and America, Germany, France, Canada, Australia, etc. refuse to say anything about it. And with Trump in power now in America, there are basically no limits, which is why we've had the recent situation with Israel, with the Israeli army bombing the Palestinians, but it started to get attention again. We've had protests over America's decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and the opening of the US embassy in Jerusalem. This is from the Times. I'm not going to read all of it, but this is from the article. The deadliest day for Gaza in four years began with tens of thousands of people marching towards the Israeli border. Angered by the opening of the US embassy in Jerusalem, many of them set out to breach the border fence despite grim warnings from the Israeli military to steer clear. In a matter of hours, dozens were dead. White tendrils from a barrage of tear gas canisters, some dropped from drones, pierced the plumes of black smoke from tires set alight by Palestinians. It felt like your lungs were being torn apart. They were using drones to drop the gas in the middle of the crowds. Each round would contain 10 to 12 gas canisters, said Ahmed Rezek, 26, who was injured in the leg. The shooting was direct. It was mostly live ammunition targeting limbs, legs and knees. Many were hit by explosive bullets, so needed amputations. He went on to say, the article goes on. According to the health ministry in Gaza, at least 55 people, eight of them under the age of 16, were killed and more than 2,700 injured, the worst day of violence since 2014. Human rights groups, including Amnesty International, condemn the excessive use of lethal weaponry as abhorrent. The Palestinians said 1,360 people have been injured by gunfire. The Israel Defense Forces defended the use of live ammunition, saying that Hamas militants had led a terrorist operation under the cover of masses of people. Fighter jets struck five targets in Gaza belonging to Hamas's armed wing in response to cross-border fire from militants, it added. The rioters are hurling fire bombs and explosive devices at the security fence and IDF troops and are burning tires, throwing rocks and launching flaming objects with the intention of igniting fires in Israeli territory, the IDF said. See, this is what happens. There'll be some violence or attack by Palestinians. And then Israel says, well, Israel has a right to defend itself. Well, I mean burning tires and throwing stones and what Palestinians give back to Israel. It's the equivalent of someone attacking you with a water gun and then you replying with an AK-47. Less than a hundred miles away in a garden bedecked with US and Israeli flags, a very different scene played out was a delegation from Washington led by John Sullivan, Deputy Secretary of State and Ivanka Trump inaugurated the new embassy in Jerusalem. To rapturous applause, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's Prime Minister, declared the truth is that Jerusalem has been and always will be the capital of the Jewish people, the capital of the Jewish state. Well, if he's talking about Israel, I thought it was Tel Aviv myself. During the opening ceremony, a smiling President Trump said in a video message that the move had been a long time coming. 
well, planned for a long time more like, and insisted that the US remain fully committed to pursuing a peace deal. He later tweeted, big day for Israel, congratulations. They don't want peace in Palestine. That's why Israel keeps attacking Palestine. After the ceremony was over, Mr. Netanyahu defended the actions of his security forces. Every country has an obligation to defend its borders, he wrote on Twitter. Moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is likely to inflame tensions and further destabilize the peace process. Well, that's what they want. The status of Jerusalem is at the heart of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because it is claimed by both sides as their capital. Mr. Trump's decision in December to push ahead with the embassy move was decried by dozens of countries, including Britain. Saeed Erika, a senior aide to Mr. Abbas, said earlier that the US was no longer a partner in peace efforts and had become part of the problem, not part of the solution. Whatever was it about peace? When has the United States ever been about being a partner in peace efforts? All the United States does is cause conflict wherever it goes and destruction and division, as does Britain as well, for that matter. The embassy was opened on the 70th anniversary of the creation of Israel in 1948, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians fled or were expelled. A spokesman for Downing Street said that Theresa May was concerned by the reports of violence and loss of life in Gaza. We urge calm and restraint to avoid actions destructive to peace efforts. But she won't criticise the Zionist philosophy and those behind it, and Israel. Zaid Rad al-Hussein, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, tweeted, Shocking killing of dozens, injury of hundreds by Israeli life firing Gaza must stop now. The right to life must be respected. This is all part of the plan for a greater Israel, great only in size. This was envisioned by Jaim Jabotinsky in the early 20th century, and he is the founder of revisionist Zionism, elite Zionism. You don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist, you just have to believe in the right to be Jewish homeland in Palestine. Syria is being targeted now to break up Syria to create a further expansion of Israel. This is why Palestinian land has been demolished generation after generation. All part of making way for this greater Israel that they have sought for so long. And the deception is based massively on the idea that it's God's will that there's a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Because it says so in their Bible. Over the generations, Palestinian land has been demolished and taken over by Israeli settlers because of what it says in their Bible. Because of that, they believe they have a right to it. It's all bollocks, but they believe it. So to them, they're only doing God's will. They're only doing the right thing. This is why religion is one of the greatest forms of mind control ever invented. A Bible written by who knows who, who knows when, and who knows what circumstances. As I said, revisionist Zionism came about from Jaib Jabotinsky, who believed in the right for a Jewish state in Palestine, and that only military force would achieve this. Jabotinsky believed in a greater Israel. The current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu's father, Benjamin Netanyahu, was Jabotinsky's personal assistant. And it's just carrying on now, Netanyahu, the same plan envisioned by Jabotinsky all that time ago. Trump is a revisionist Zionist. Anyone in his position is, but he's got no limits, and thus under Trump, Israel now has no limits. Last night, Mr. Poku Gyaima announced she is pulling out of the selection race due to an unexpected family situation. She said, this has forced me to reflect long and hard on whether to put myself forward for consideration to be selected as the next Labour Party candidate in a Louis Chamise by-election. She added, it's not been an easy or happy decision for me not to put myself forward, so I ask for privacy at this time. I would like to thank all those who have supported my candidacy. I have been deeply moved and inspired by the messages and displays of support I have received over the past week. Miss Apoku Jaima, also known as Lady Phil, is a founder of UK Black Pride and sits on the TUC's Race Relations Committee. Ms Alexander announced earlier this month that she is quitting Parliament to work for London Mayor Sadiq Khan. The MP is 
clashed repeatedly with Mr Corbyn and joined a walkout on his shadow cabinet in 2016. She has since been the leader of an opposing Brexit from the Labour backbench. Miss Alexander's resignation has been rumoured for weeks. She is the third MP to quit the Commons for a new job under Mr Corbyn's leadership following Jamie Reid and Tristram Hunt. A string of other MPs stood down at the 2017 general election in frustration at Mr Corbyn's leadership. In her new post, she will be Deputy Mayor for Transport City Hall, replacing Val Shawcross and Mr Tan's team. She is legally barred from being both MP and a Deputy Mayor of City Hall. I've talked about his own Zionism, elite Zionism or revisionist Zionism in episode 10 and 13. We need to call it out for what it is because, as I've said before, there's so much that will be revealed if we do. Not just highlighting the plight of the Palestinians at the hands of the Israeli army, but also the fact that the House of Rothschild are fundamentally involved in Zionism. That's why... Israel can get away with anything because Israel is the Rothschild's fiefdom and they are the top of the elite pyramid of control and manipulation and when that's exposed then so much else can be exposed and that's why they don't want people talking about or criticising Israel. And you've got groups like the Northwest Friends of Israel, like the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, like the Anti-Defamation League and others around the world. Very well organised. Who's doing the organising? Who seek to either intimidate or silence those asking legitimate questions about the treatment of the Palestinians at the hands of the Israeli regime. There was that article I read out last week which said that they're considering plans and I would say this is where this is going to find hate crime which they will decide what that is and anybody who is found guilty under, under their definition of hate crime, will go to jail. Possibly a year in jail, possibly three years in jail. Not just for criticising Israel, although that will certainly be massively part of it, but criticising transgender, criticising or asking questions about transgender even. Any area of society that political correctness says you can't say that, you can't say this, that's not politically correct. A year in jail, three years in jail. This is where it's going. And any tyranny that has to jail people in other countries just for asking questions of it obviously has a tremendous amount to hide. Well, I talk about Zionism in episode 1, 3, 10, 13, this one, 17, and I may very well have mentioned it in other episodes as well. And I go on mentioning it because unless we do, what I've just said will happen. There will be no freedom of speech at all, and thus there will be no freedom. As I've talked about before, how can you defend freedom without the freedom of speech to do it? How can you highlight the plight of the Palestinians at the hands of the Israeli army, which now, under Trump, will face no limits? Under other American leaders, at least there was some limits, even though they were still completely controlled from Israel. There was still limits. We are seeing now under Donald Trump a situation where Israel can basically do whatever it likes. This is Mr. I'm going to drain the swamp Trump. And he spent much of his life swimming in it. These are the same groups, Zionist groups, that seek to stop people speaking who are speakers at an event or they're doing a presentation or a talk. They'll contact venues, threaten them, that there could be violence or protests if the event is allowed to go ahead. They'll lie to them. They'll say this person's going to say this when they're not and never have done. And if that doesn't work, and this has happened, and if it's happened once, it'll happen 
an infinite number of times if necessary. They'll contact the local police and in the case that I'm referring to, a council anti-extremist coordinator to scare the shit out of the venues, to pressure the venues into cancelling the event because criticism of Israel must not be allowed to be expressed. This is what they do, they intimidate people, they intimidate venues to try to get them to shut up about criticism of Israel. Well, all I'll say is, it's a shame that this podcast does not have a wider audience, although, to be fair, from the numbers the podcast is generating, it does have, it's got great numbers in terms of listenership for the number of episodes I've done. But it's a shame this show doesn't have more because I would love to get this criticism of Israel out to a much wider audience because if they're saying you're not allowed to say this, well then that's exactly what we need to say and go on saying it. Israel is such an important area to understand within the whole global web of control and manipulation and that's why they want to frighten people or try to into not talking about it even as the article I read out last week suggested threatening them with prison. You say they should go into jail. This is where it's going and we need to stand up to it while we still can. Story here about transgender. This is in the Daily Mail. You'll notice as I go through pay-per-view, I've been doing it for over four months now and the same subjects keep coming up week after week after week. Some weeks they don't, but as you look at the whole pay-per-view so far, even though it's only been just over four months, you'll see the same subjects keep coming up. I was talking about transgender in episode one. That was the first time I mentioned it, and I've mentioned it many times since, because there's an agenda behind it. That's why it keeps coming up, along with other subjects that I've covered on pay-per-view. The transgender thought police Children as young as four are being asked by the trans-friendly primary school to inform on anyone calling transgender pupils by the wrong pronoun. The policy at Arby Primary in Cambridge states that it is legal to call someone he or she or it against their wishes. This is where we are now with this war on freedom of speech and with the enforcement, because that's what it is, of transgender. How long before it actually is illegal? Remember that article I read out last week about possible jail time for hate speech? hate speech by the authorities definition. The school also urges parents of children who no longer identify as their biological gender to consider changing their name by D-Pole. What business is that of the schools, what name the kids have? But again, it points to what I've said before, where the state takes over from parents and in the end, because of this transgender nonsense, this fluid gender nonsense, which has only recently appeared, relatively recently, the idea is the state will manufacture people, if you can call them people in that situation, because of the synthetic everything agenda, and synthetic everything includes synthetic humans, and this is how transgender fundamentally connects into transhumanism, the non-human, synthetic human, technological human agenda which fundamentally involves smart meters. Going back to the first story today, because smart meters are part of this cloud to which the human mind will be attached before it becomes an artificial intelligence mind. 
That's where a transgender is going. Arbury holds assemblies to celebrate a child's transition from a boy to a girl and vice versa, has introduced a gender-neutral uniform and allows children to use laboratories of whichever sex they assign themselves to. The warning on misgendering comes on the school website. A brightly coloured page entitled How to be Trans Friendly features cartoons of smiling children surrounded by rainbows. It states, calling someone he or she, it, or deliberately the wrong pronoun is unkind and illegal. If you hear or see this type of language being used, challenge or report it. Elsewhere, the guidance says, trans children will understand the difference between a genuine mistake and something deliberate in relation to names and pronouns. The statement that misgendering is illegal may be based on the school's interpretation of the 2010 Equalities Act, which suggests that a hate crime takes place when a member of a minority perceives one to have happened. So, it's not even down to what the person actually meant. It's when the perceived victim, who's being encouraged to be a victim by being told they should be, thinks that that's what they are in any given situation. But Tory MP David Davis said, in my view, they are being completely irresponsible giving this advice to parents who may be struggling with how to help a child who is confused about their gender. Yeah, because they're being systematically confused. Primary school kids now are being asked to choose from several different genders. And they're having this bollocks imposed upon them as well. It's ludicrous that the school would suggest something as radical as legal name change for children this young. What the school should be concentrating on is teaching pupils reading, writing and arithmetic. And Stephanie Davis arrived from Transgender Trend, a parent-led campaign group concerned about rising number of children being diagnosed as transgender, added for a primary-aged child to change their name by depot is a drastic step that will cement a gender identity that the child may grow out of. May not grow out of, I imagine, is what the quote should be. That's the idea. Arbury headmaster Ben Toll advocated his trans-friendly policy in a previous interview, saying it is really important that school is ready for anyone who walks in. For children at primary level, the more we can do to non-stereotype them, the better. We steer away from the binary model. Well, two things to that. First of all, political correctness, as I've said in the last episode and the episode before that, episode 16 and 15. Political correctness enforces stereotypes because it sees everyone as a group. It doesn't do merit. It doesn't do seeing everybody as individuals. It sees everybody as a group, which means that's how it just sees groups, doesn't see people. Arbery tells its staff to encourage parents to think about legally changing their children's name and guidance published on its website. The guidelines, which are now being used by other primaries, detail what a school should do when a child wants to begin living as the opposite sex to the one they were born. How many children would think that without all the propaganda? Entitled Supporting the Process of Gender Transition in School, a practical guide, the document makes clear that trans children should not be prevented from living in their preferred gender. It states the point at which a child indicates to others that they want to transition and begin living in their preferred gender should not be viewed by others as a problem to be solved. Do we really believe that all of a sudden children all over the country have simultaneously decided that they're in the wrong body and they want to change their gender? When it, the scale of that happening is minuscule, if at all, in previous generations. And it's just spontaneously happened. It's been enforced and placed in front of children through all the propaganda. That's where it's coming from. Staff are told that parents allowing their children to change gender should be advised to consider changing their child's name by depot. But even without legal changes, the child name should be amended on the school's computer records, the one they have chosen, the guide says. Children who have transitioned should be allowed to use changing rooms that correspond with their gender preference. Prepare the rest of the school for a child returning to a class as a different gender from the one they were born in. Assembly is held to explain the concept of being transgender. Nothing to do with helping the child, ultimately. It's another, another vehicle of propaganda. 
A publicly available script prepared by Mr. Tull explains some children are born in the body of a boy and know that inside they are a girl. Some children are born in the body of a girl and know that they are a boy. But how many without all the propaganda? Hardly any, if at all. That's the point. And what is one of the major vehicles of the propaganda? Primary schools. Pupils are told that we celebrate the fact we have a school full of so many different people. And this is another section here. Men who identify as women can now sleep in female dormitories at youth hostels across England and Wales. So, what's the chances of someone who doesn't actually identify as a woman abusing that policy? Obviously, there's a very high chance that could happen. And also, I've come across a story before about a transgender man using a female changing room when there was girls in there. I mean, it's... But, of course, they would say, but you can't discriminate against me, I'm transgender, so I'm, I perceive myself to be female, so what's the problem? The problem, of course, with that is that it could be abused, that policy. The Youth Hostel Association made the controversial ruling in an effort to make its facilities and services more inclusive of transgender guests. The YHA's inclusion and diversity policy published on its website states transgender guests are welcome to use the accommodation and facilities which match their gender identity, but feminist campaigner Venice Allen condemned the decision as disturbing. Miss Allen, who was suspended from the Labour Party for criticising trans women. I always choose the women's dormitory when I stay at a youth hostel. I wouldn't feel comfortable sleeping near or changing in front of men. But you see, that's not as important as the transgender man's feelings because of this political correctness hierarchy, which I've talked about before in episode 16 and 15. Transgender is... Transgenderism is about depopulation through lack of procreation and the end of human on route to synthetic human and we need to say that no matter what the Ben Tongs of this world say and when they say we can't say this or that because it's not politically correct and it's potentially abusive to transgender people what that means is say it even more that's the only way we're going to preserve freedom of speech and therefore every other freedom, and freedom itself, therefore. Final story today about law enforcement. This is an opinion piece by Peter Hitchens, who writes some good stuff. That's not to say I agree with everything he writes, but he does write a lot of good stuff. It has to be said. This is an article in the Daily Mail. Peter Hitchens, we need proper constables, not these swaggering gunmen. The mere sight of an armed police officer in this country makes me instantly furious and miserable. Sometimes I just have to look away while I collect myself, then I hurry off as fast as I can. This is instinctive and emotional, but it is not irrational. The reasons for it run deep. I can understand where he's coming from. For me, the problem I have is when I see law enforcement acting in a very officious way, just because it's law enforcement and knowing that the world they're policing in is the world their own families are going to have to live in that's what gets to me about it anyway the article goes on i was brought up in a country which was actively proud that its police were not armed now i am told that rural police are to be armed on the excuse that this will guard our showers against terrorism it is a pretext it just means that like everywhere else our police will routinely have firearms this will be the end of britain as it was that's the idea. We used to think that other less happy nations might need to use guns to keep order. We did not. 
and for many years I returned from travels abroad and rejoiced at this difference between my home and foreign lands. As George Orwell said, the beer was bitterer and the coins were heavier and the police were different. They weren't the unapproachable scowling army of the state, they were the police of a free, peaceful population, our allies against crime and disorder. Then, after an especially long stint overseas, I came back, looked for the familiar constables I was used to, and I found that we now had cops instead. It was the beginning of one of the most profound changes in our society that has ever taken place, one about which we were not consulted and which was never openly discussed. They stopped walking, except occasionally in pairs. They zoomed about in cars, they wore flat caps and big boots, handcuffs, clubs and a massive ironmongery hung from their big belts. And affected by this transformation, they had begun to swagger and scowl as well. No wonder, all this clattering stuff said clearly that they did not like or trust the public anymore. Add carrying guns to all that as well, like the story I've just read out. Bit by bit it grew worse. Even in my peaceful hometown, I began to see cops with submachine guns standing grimly outside court buildings. The flat caps gave way to baseball caps. And in the capital, I learned to expect to see armed officers on the excuse which I think is thin. They are guarding embassies and other sensitive buildings. If the threat is really that great, then the army should guard them. If not, then taking police constables away from their real jobs and employing them as sentries should end. People will tell me that lives would have been saved if armed police officers had been present at some recent supposed terrorist incidents. But my research shows that almost all these events were the work of deranged individuals out of their minds on drugs. The vast spreading abuse of drugs is pretty certainly the main single reason for the much higher levels of violence we now have. I've talked about mind control, assassins in episode 9, and drugs are used copiously in mind control programs. And people will say, even when it's highlighted that it is a gunman who is, or who was, studying effects of drugs in terms of psychology at university, for example, then they don't just say, oh, it's just a lone nutter. The reason we keep saying lone nutters is because if you can hold it at one person, then that means that there's no looking beyond them to anybody else that could have been involved. The article goes on. It is so obvious people in their right minds recoil from serious violence, but mind-altering trials made them capable of terrible actions. If every violent criminal and suicide was checked for his or her use of marijuana, steroids or antidepressants, I think the connection would rapidly become undeniable. But powerful, rich lobbies fear such checks. If we had a proper patrolling force of the old kind, many of these incidents would never happen. Such a force would apply the boring laws on drug possession, which are armed and scowling gendarmes and those soppy, sweaty intellectual chief officers think of beneath them. Well, again, don't necessarily agree with that. Some People in law enforcement just love imposing any law just because they're imposing a law. The idea of power, they love that. Through their intimate knowledge of their beats and their frequent contact with the law abiding, they would be aware of the strange behaviour of such people long before it became a danger. For an unarmed, modest, old-fashioned police force which walks quietly among us has millions of willing eyes and ears in the shape of a friendly and supportive public. But an armed state militia dressed for combat with its face set in a rigid frown and its hands ever reaching for gun, club or handcuffs such as we now have is a stranger to the people. And as well as making us look like a foreign despotism, it will fail in its task. Well, that last paragraph makes an important point that some of these people in law enforcement, they want a fight. They don't necessarily care what about, they just want to fight. And I've said before, the idea is for a psychopathic, brutal, merciless police force to be law enforcement in the Hunger Games society, the Agenda 21 world. And due to what's known as psychometric testing, they can very accurately glean someone's personality profile, personality type, from answers given to very carefully worded questions. 
and law enforcement figures are being recruited not because of ability to do the job primarily, but because of their personality. I mean, you can see that with some of these policemen. You ask them to quote the law for which they're arresting you or giving you a warning, which they actually have to quote you to arrest you. And they can't answer you. And then they might attack you back because they feel their dominance is being challenged. They don't like the fact that you're calling them out on something that they're supposed to know. They're idiots, but they're useful idiots because they are designed to be the new breed of policemen. Replacing the old-fashioned policemen that Peter Hitchens talks about in this article. And I say new in the sense of the difference between new and old, but of course these type of policemen have been around for a while now. In the end, the plan is for a robotic police force. I read a story last week about robots being developed by Boston Dynamics, a company previously associated with Monster Google, who have been developing similar robots because they're both working to the same agenda. These are planned to be the law enforcement of the future. Law enforcement in general is policing in a world which their own families are going to have to live in. I'm working on a book at the moment, kind of on and off between the podcast and life in general but one of the things I say in the book is that people within law enforcement and the administrative positions within society who don't know the agenda they're not the origin of it but they're administering it into society have children and grandchildren they have partners they're enforcing and administering every day the very agenda their own families will be subjected to and the very world that I have to live in that this global agenda demands. Those who have jobs within those positions need to have a long, hard think about what they're doing, whether they want to continue advancing an agenda designed to enslave their own families and themselves any longer. The military are doing the same. They are advancing a geopolitical agenda because of the West's foreign policy to take over more and more countries and to justify massive increases in the 1984 world and other agenda goals as well. They need to realize that they're not serving their country at all. They're not protecting their country because many of the terrorist events, I can say after 10 years of studying world events and the true nature of changes in society, many of these terrorist events, especially 9-11, are orchestrated by intelligence agencies and so they're going to happen anyway and in many of these events they have recurring themes one of the recurring themes is lack of security and no matter how many times they step up security and how much after terrorist events it's never enough it's never enough and also cameras that would normally be working don't work or the security that should be there is removed for whatever reason for that particular time of that event for some reason it's not there when it usually is people in the military are not protecting their country they are fighting to advance this foreign policy agenda of the west taking over more and more and more countries and that is designed to culminate in a massive global conflict to which they can offer massive long-time goals of the agenda as a solution to the problem caused by the conflict. Like a world government, unelected, talked about that before, 
like a world army to impose the will of the world government on any nation or group who doesn't want to surrender their lives to the orders of the world government in much the same way as countries of Europe and the European Union have to. The official reason will be to stop a world war ever happening again, but the real reason will be to be the equivalent of NATO now, any country the West wants to target that's not playing ball, like Syria, they invade, or they, of course it's not gone completely to plan with Syria. That's the basic principle. And I'm not saying we don't need policing. I'm not saying we don't need law enforcement. We need it more than ever at the moment since it's being run down in an attempt to privatise it, just like the NHS. The NHS, for people listening around the world, is a national health service in England, and there's an NHS in each country of the United Kingdom. Policemen are being given more and more paperwork to do rather than being out catching criminals genuinely protecting people police forces are being underfunded we need law enforcement and police more than ever now at this time because of that but what we don't need is imposition of law enforcement for the sake of imposition of law enforcement anything that takes away freedom because of an agenda like terrorist legislation based on terrorist events which are manipulated by the intelligence arena to justify, among other things, increases in the 1984 world. It's a very different thing to police being there to protect people. This goes on to another level with psychopathic police and robotic police. Nothing to do with protection, it's to do with control. Again, it comes down to the shift in perception I've talked about today. It's the difference between looking through a telescope at a vast panorama and stepping away from the telescope and seeing the vast panorama in its entirety in front of you. That's where context and connections come in, and that's where pay-per-view comes in. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.